So it's been 97 Sundays that we have been in the book of Luke. And as I said, we're finishing it today. Uh, the title of our series is Blessed Assurance. And here's where the title comes from. Um, it comes from the purpose for which the book was written. And if you've been with us since we started, and if you can remember back that far, uh, Luke chapter one, verse four, gives us sort of the big idea of the book. Luke says that he writes this gospel that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And that word certainty is key. It literally means stability, it means safety, and it means security, and this is essential for our faith, that we have this stability, that we have this safety, that we have this security, that we have this certainty that that what is contained here in this gospel is in fact the truth that it all actually happened. And that's important. Hebrews 11.6 uh, tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That God is who he says he is, that he does what he says he's going to do, and that he rewards those that, that put their faith in him and diligently seek after him. That's a problem for our flesh, though. Because everything in you and everything in me is wired to walk by sight. Uh, we, we want, especially, you know, control freaks of the world unite. Like this is, we like to be in control, don't we? Um, and, and I don't care if you're a control freak or not, you like the comfort of being able to walk by what you can see, what you can figure out, uh, you know, one plus one equals two, that's the way you like it. Um, and oftentimes the things that happen in this world bring us to a place where we just come to the edge, and, and now it's like, I don't know what's here. And I have, to, I have to step off of here, out into the unknown, out into faith, and I have to trust God. And, uh, and some days, like this morning, that can be hard. It'd be hard to get to the edge. And the unknown is right there in front of you, and you don't know, man, what, what, what am I going to do? And God's word is very clear about what we're supposed to do. But our flesh doesn't always agree. It doesn't always feel right to us, right? I remember, and I think I've told you the story, I took my dad in my boat over to Catalina, and it uh, sounds glamorous, a little 18-foot boat, uh, which I don't have anymore. I sold it when I started this church. I figured I was going to be a little bit busy, and I was right. Um, but I used to go over all the time. And we'd head out, and you know, you go over to Catalina, and nine times out of ten, you can't see the island when you start out. You trust in your compass heading. And, and you get a few miles offshore, now you can't see anything. You can't see the mainland, you can't see the island. And boy, without that compass, you're in trouble. So we're heading across, and my dad tells me, you're going in the wrong direction. And I said, well, actually, Dad, uh, we're, we're going exactly where we should go. See, I would always, the compass heading points you to Avalon, but that's at the southern tip of the island, and you'd miss it just a little bit. I mean, you're just out into the, to the deep blue, you know? Uh, and so I would always aim a little fat, go towards the middle of the island, and then when I got really close, then I would kind of do the extra skirt south to get to Avalon just to be safe. And so I said, look, we're, the compass says we're on the right heading, Dad. And uh, he says, I can feel it that the island is over there. And I said, well, Dad, if it's all the same to you, I'm going to trust the compass. And I'll tell you what, if we, if we burn more than a quarter tank of gas and the island doesn't come into sight, I will turn around. 
He says, all right. And sure enough, he says, I'll be doggone as the island comes into view. See, life is like that. And our gut says, this isn't right. But God's word is the compass. It says, this is where, this is where home is. This is where the safety is. This is the, where the target, the goal is. This is where you're going. We have to trust in God's word. So what we discover throughout the book of Luke is that our faith, listen, it's not a blind faith. It's based on amazingly certain facts, facts that we can trust, facts that are stable, that are safe, and that are secure. That Jesus came just as the prophets promised that he would, right on time. That, that he lived a sinless life, that he ultimately gave his life as a ransom for many. That if we confess our sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Bible is true when it says that Jesus was raised again. He gave his life and then he raised from the dead. His life did not end after he gave his life uh, for you and me. He went to the grave because the wages of sin is death and Jesus uh, took our sin upon himself and, and paid the penalty, which is death, for your sin. Uh, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And yet the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And Jesus died for our sins, but he rose again on the third day, and he conquered Satan and sin and death. And the hope is that as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that we too can rise from the dead. That if we place our faith in Jesus, his death on the cross, it, it, for sin, uh, it includes our sin. And our hope is to say, Jesus, I believe that. I believe that you're the Christ, that you're the son of the living God, that you died on the cross for my sin in my place. I believe that you raised from the grave on the third day, just as the prophets foretold and just as you foretold. And, and I believe that you conquered Satan's sin and death. I believe that you ascended into heaven. I believe that you're coming again. I've placed my faith in you. And when we do that, listen, we conquer Satan's sin and death ourselves in Jesus Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Thank you, Jesus. And this is what the Bible teaches us. And Luke, in his corollary book, he writes the Gospel of Luke, and then he writes the book of Acts. And we're so grateful for the book of Acts in the church now because it tells us the acts of the disciples, what they did. We'll look at it at the end of our message today. Uh, but basically, how they took the baton from Jesus and they carried on the work that God had entrusted for them. And the book of Acts tells us that Jesus presented himself alive to the apostles after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so as we conclude Luke's gospel today, we're going to focus on Jesus' first appearing to his disciples. He appeared to them many times after his resurrection, gave them many proofs, and we're going to look at some of the proofs he gave in his first appearing to them today as the gospel concludes with this account. We're gonna look at three things today. We're gonna see that Jesus gives the proof of his resurrection. We're going to see that Jesus gives the purpose and the plan of his resurrection. And finally, Jesus gives the power and the commission to preach the message of the resurrection. Let's pick it up now, verse 36, where we left off. It says, now... As they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. Who's the they? Well, if you were here last week, you saw that Jesus, after his resurrection, he appeared to, uh, to, the, to uh, the, the angels, appeared to the women there and told them that he had ri risen from the, the grave and all. And then he, these 
couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself appears in their midst. They don't recognize him. He's talking to them. Hey, what, what's going on? Why, why are you guys so downcast? What's going on? And they're like, are you new? Are you kidding? You don't know what's going on? What, what things have happened? And so they share, you know, all the events that have happened. They're very defeated. And Jesus begins to, to reveal to them through the Old Testament prophets, through Moses, and, and, you know, all through the scriptures that they have. Hey, this is, this is the ABCs of faith. This is, this is who, who Jesus is, according to the Old Testament. The whole Bible speaks of Jesus. And so he's telling them all these things. And then they say, hey, man, you know, we're, we're here. Why don't you come in, stay with us? It's kind of late, you know. And so he does. And they're there, and they begin to have a meal. They, he breaks the bread, and he prays over it. And at that moment, their eyes are open. They're like, it's Jesus. And he vanishes out of their sight. And so now what happens is they, they hightail it back to Jerusalem. They got to talk to the disciples. You will never imagine. And so as they said these things, the things that they had experienced, the things that Jesus had said, now all of a sudden Jesus is standing in their midst. What we have here now is the beginning of the proof of Jesus' resurrection. These disciples now, uh, hey, Jesus shows up. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, when two saints are talking together, Jesus is very likely to come and to make the third one in the company. Talk of him and you will soon talk with him. And so here they are, they're talking of him. Now there he is. He's in their midst. Now, John records this event this way. I put it on the screen for you, John 20, 19. It says, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, the same day, meaning his resurrection day, same day he had appeared to these guys on the road to Emmaus. Being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood in the midst and he said to them, peace be with you. So now, just as he appeared supernaturally, miraculously to these guys on the road to Emmaus and disappeared supernaturally from their midst, now again, supernaturally, he appears in this locked room with these disciples. And so he says to them, first of all, uh, peace be to you. Why? Because they're stressed out. Verse 37, they were terrified and they were frightened and they supposed that they had seen a spirit. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? That word troubled that Jesus uses in verse 38, it, it, it means this. It means an inward commotion which disrupts equanimity. An inward commotion which disrupts equanimity. If you're like me, you've got to look up equanimity. What is that, right? Here's equanimity. Equanimity is a mental calmness and composure and an evenness of temperament, uh, especially in a difficult situation, right? Now, let me tell you what it's not, okay? The other day, I had, uh, I had let me do the math here, six of my grandkids over at my house. Um, Scotty, my son, and his four kids, they had uh, something going on at their house. They, could, they, they couldn't stay at their house because there was, you know, trouble and they were getting it all worked out. But they had to come stay at my house. So Scotty comes and he brings his, uh, his four kids to my house. And praise the Lord, I love my grandkids. Come on over. Well, Zach and Caitlin here, hey, all, all, they're all over at Nana and Papa's house. Well, let's go too. So Zach and Caitlin come, they bring their two kids. Now I got six kids in my house and six kids whose routines are all messed up, right? And it's party time because when you're in Nana and Papa's house, it's a party. So, so they are, they're going crazy in my house. 
And, and that's cool and all, except, man, so my two-year-old uh, grandson, uh, he, he, uh, he's got his papa's temperament, okay? And when the older grandkids take, his, uh, take something from him, he loses his mind. And he has a scream that goes right from here, right down through your toes. I lost my equanimity. Let me just say that. Now, Papa's doing his best, man, but I finally went in my room. I got earplugs, and I stuck them in my ear. And Brenda's like, you're ridiculous. I go, look, it's either this or I lose my salvation. I'm just saying <laughs> right now. So, so a loss of equanimity, right? And... What happens here is that these disciples have lost their equanimity. And, you know, we'll give them grace. They've been through a lot. They've seen the, horror, the horrors that have happened to Jesus. They, they see how it's open season now on Christians. They're hiding in this upper room, waiting at any minute for the, the religious authorities and the Romans to show up and haul them all off to be crucified. They're afraid. And so all of a sudden now Jesus shows up and, and they're freaking out. And so that's their emotional state. And when Jesus shows up, they're freaking out, they see him, and he, Jesus discerns that they had doubts rising in their hearts. That word doubts, it means an internal deliberation in the mind, questioning what is true. That's really important. So they, they, they've lost their equanimity, they're freaking out, and now they're doubting. They're, they're, they're going through a whole a series of doubt, and their minds, their conscious minds, what they can see, that's winning the argument, that's key. See, the application for us is that although you and I are never going to experience what the disciples are going through right here, we'll never experience what they're going through. We will never experience that amount of trauma and stress and, and all, and then have Jesus show up in the flesh right before us. But I'll tell you what, you will have a loss of equanimity and you will have that battle of faith that occurs in your mind, just as they, they have here. When things don't go like you anticipate, when, when God allows trials and hardships in your life, when you limit what is possible with God. And here's the most dangerous thing that can happen to us and to our faith during those times. And, and listen, those times happen, right? Some people call that Tuesday. It, it happens. And when that happens, listen, the danger is when your natural mind wins the argument over your faith. Maybe even this morning your natural mind has been winning the argument. God has abandoned me. God doesn't care about me. My situation is hopeless. Maybe I should just give up. We've got an example in the Psalms, King David. Here's a guy, he went through some, some trials and some hardship and he went through incredible promise as well. His dad didn't think that much of him. He, he you know, the, the prophet Samuel is told by God, hey, Saul's out, disobedient, uh, I'm going to replace Saul. There's a new king that I'm going to anoint in Israel. I want you to go to the house of Jesse, and I want you to anoint one of his sons. He doesn't tell him which one. And so he gets there, and, uh, and he goes through all of Jesse's sons, and the Lord's like, not him, not him. And Samuel's seeing some of these guys. Like he sees Eliab, and, and he's like, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Like, he, he looks like a king. He's tall, and he's, you know, he, he just fits the bill. And God's like, 
man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, he ain't it. And so uh, he finally says to Jesse, you got any more sons? Because like he's paraded them all through and he's like, well, basically, and I'll paraphrase, he basically goes, yeah, there's the runt of the litter out stinking up the field with the sheep. But, you know, he ain't it. And uh, Samuel says, bring him in. We're not going to sit down until he comes in. And he comes in and the Lord says, arise and anoint him. He's the one. And so, so he's anointed as king. Wow. And you would think, okay, wow. Hey, y'all didn't appreciate me out in the field being a shepherd, really lowly kind of, you know, the shepherds were despised. And that, that kind of job was despised. And that just gives you a big insight of what his dad thought of him. What his brothers all thought of him, contempt, you know. And now David might go, hey, <laughs> there's a new sheriff in town. You guys should have seen. And now I'm going to go straight into the role of being, being the king over Israel. But it doesn't work that way. See, because before God uses you, a lot of times he has to crush you. He has to break you. He has to season you. He has to take you through trials. I always tell this to guys that are going out to do works of, you know, going out on a great venture of faith. I'm going to plant a church or whatever it is. Get ready. Because before God can really use you, he's going to crush you. And you're going to want to tap out. Like all the time, you're going to want to tap out. And you have to go through that because God's preparing you. And so David went through this. And, and even after, you know, he starts stepping into prominence and he starts having victory with, with uh, you know, over Goliath. Everybody's afraid. He goes and kills Goliath and, and cuts his head off and walking around with this trophy, you know. Even after that, Things didn't go well because Saul starts seeing him now as a threat. Oh, David, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands is the song the women are singing. And so David's like, well, uh, you know, you would think, all right, I'm coming into my own. No, 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 now Saul goes on the attack. So David, he goes through incredible trials and listen to his prayer uh, now in Psalm 61, verses one and two. He says this in this state. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. Here it is. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Lead me to you, God. When, when, when the compass heading doesn't go with the way that my heart thinks is right, when the circumstances are going in such a way that I'm overwhelmed, God, lead me to you. Listen, that's an excellent prayer. Because what David is acknowledging is that God is higher than our reasoning. Guys, can I tell you, God's higher than your reasoning. He can, he's higher than, than your earthly math. And when things aren't going the way that, that you hoped that uh, they would. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But here's the key. Our faith isn't a result of blind trust. It is based on fact. It's based on fact. I like what Dr. Henry Morris said in his commentary. He says, the Bible doesn't recommend a blind leap of faith, but the reasons can't be measured in a laboratory. They have to be understood spiritually. Faith extends beyond what we learn from our senses. And the author is saying, he's talking about the, 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 the quote I just gave you in Hebrews. The author is saying that faith has its reasons. Its texts, uh, its tests are not those of the senses which yield uncertainty. Faith has its reasons, and among those reasons are the proof that Jesus now demonstrates to his apostles. Verse uh, 39, uh, hey, uh, he says, to, well, 38, why are you troubled? 
Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Here's what he says. Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, this right here is amazing. There are those that will say, oh, Jesus, he really didn't rise physically because they just can't, their minds can't get around the fact that somebody would be, would be killed and resurrect from the dead. <coughs> Conveniently losing sight of the fact that in the very first place, God made man out of dirt and breathed his life into them. Like he made woman out of, out of Adam's rib. He, he made the sun, the moon, the stars, and now everything in the universe just by speaking it into existence. I'm pretty sure he can rise somebody from the dead. And, and so yet they will say, no, he just wrote, it was just a spiritual rising. This refutes that. Jesus is saying, no, no, it's me in the flesh. Now, his, his resurrected body had supernatural components that we will never understand. He's able to appear and disappear and, and suddenly, you know, go through you know, a locked door and wall and all. And there he is in this upper room. They're barricaded in there. But he's there. He's been resurrected physically. He says, behold my hands and my feet. Check it out. I got, I got the nail scars. And, and uh, he says, look, it, it, I've got flesh and bones. You see me right here. And when he had said this, verse 40, he, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and they marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? It's the, the attitude, the idea is, oh my gosh, this is, just, this is just too good to be true. Am I dreaming? Like, I can't believe this. They can't believe for joy. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Further proof. Look, this is me, physical. I'm resurrected. I'm, I'm right here. Now, Jesus does something here for these apostles that you and I don't get to experience. We don't get to experience the physical manifestation of Jesus, right? They get to see him. They get to handle him. Uh, they get to eat with him. By the way, he says, hey, touch me, handle me. And some people say, well, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say to Mary, you know, hey, don't touch me because I haven't ascended yet to my father because the, the gospel accounts include that. And he did say that, but it's not a contradiction because what he said to Mary was don't cling to me. Because Mary, she saw Jesus and, you know, resurrected. She grabbed hold of him. She's like, I lost you once. I ain't losing you again. And that was the kind of clinging to him. And he's like, don't cling to me. He didn't say, don't touch me. And so he tells his disciples here, yeah, a proof. Hey, let me help your faith out a little bit. Now, again, he did that to encourage their faith, to help them to come out of this state for like, this is too good to be true. He goes, I'm real. Touch, see, handle, Right? Now, arguably, this is not a great example of faith on the apostles' part, right? In that they, they need this help, and Jesus discerns that they need this kind of proof, proof that we don't have. But, but it, it, it's, not, it's not a great demonstration of faith on their part. And Jesus, actually, in John's gospel, he speaks to that fact. Fast forward a little while from here. Thomas isn't here in the text that we're reading today. He wasn't there for this experience, but a little while later, he was. And, uh, and so here's what John says. Thomas, called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And what's Thomas's nickname, by the way? Doubting Thomas. Here's where it comes from. So Jesus said to, or so Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands 
and the print of the nails, and I put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side where the Roman soldier had pierced his side and pierced his heart. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I see that. Verse 26 of John's uh, gospel says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside the room, you know, and Thomas was with them, and Jesus came, the doors being shut, and he stood in the midst, and he says, peace to you. Here I am again, right? And, uh, and then Jesus said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Jesus, and we read this in Revelation, even in his resurrected body, he bears the wounds. The only man-made thing that is in heaven are the wounds that Jesus received in the house of his friends. It's a badge of honor. It is a badge of of testament, of glory. I paid the penalty for sin. And we will see him forever when we're in heaven resurrected and we're with Jesus. We will see his nail-scarred hands. We'll see the wound in his side. It's a glorious testimony to his love for us. And he says to him, to Thomas, um, well, Thomas says, verse 28, after he says this, he answered him, he said to him, my Lord and my God, Why? After he got to physically handle and touch. And here's what Jesus says about his faith. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You can write your name right in there. That's you. That's me. Have not seen and yet believed. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded, John says, in this book, in the Gospel of John. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, he says, physical eyesight produces a conviction or evidence of visible things. Faith is the organ which enables people to see the invisible order. You and I are to have faith so that we can see the invisible order, but it is not a blind faith. It comes from what Jesus did for his disciples, where he gave them the physical evidence, the firsthand evidence to believe. But listen, he's given many proofs for us. Proofs that we talked about in last week's sermon. I encourage you to listen to the message. He's given us these proofs that we today, we don't get to physically handle Jesus, but we get to hear all of these amazing testimonies of faith, irrefutable testimonies of faith, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he set out to do. And so today, you and I, though we don't get the physical example, the physical evidence that these disciples get, We can have faith because they are proven to be true. And this brings us to our second point that Jesus now gives to the disciples in his revealing himself to them. He gives them the purpose and the plan of his resurrection. Verse 44 says, Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then Jesus said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Here, just as the angels did with the, the, the folks, at the, the gals that went to the tomb. And just as Jesus himself did with those guys on the road to Emmaus last week. He basically meets them and he takes them to the word. And he takes them back to the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he opens their understanding 
to comprehend the scriptures. And the idea of opening their understanding, as it says here that he did, um, it's that Jesus opened their conscious minds. That's the idea of that word, their understanding. He opened their conscious minds. And this would include uh, their faculties of perception, of understanding, of feeling, of judging, and of determining. Up until this point, they wanted to walk by sight, and their sight, the math wasn't adding up, and they weren't able to perceive and to understand and to feel and to judge and to determine exactly why. Why this? Why go through all this? Now, supernaturally, he, he opens up and reveals to them and gives them the ability to do the spiritual math in their head. And the result, the text tells us, was that they comprehended the meaning of the scriptures. That word comprehended means to join together in the mind. And this is a supernatural thing that God does, where he takes these scriptures and he, he says this and this plus this and this over here and this, and you can see the progression throughout all the Old Testament scriptures saying, do the math, spiritually speaking, and you can see what's going on. And so now they comprehended it. And here's the deal. The wonderful promise of the scriptures for you and me is that we, in Jesus Christ, we receive this exact same illumination. Here's what Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God, but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. And, and so the, the issue here, and Jesus himself said this to his disciples in John's gospel, he promised when the spirit of truth comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own, but he'll tell you what he has heard and he will tell you about the future. And so the truth here that Jesus now reveals to his disciples uh, is, you know, the purpose and the plan of his life and of his death and of his burial and of his resurrection and now they get it, that a penalty has to be paid for sin and that Jesus paid that penalty. And that in paying the penalty and in going to the cross and then going to the grave and then rising from the grave on the third day, that he's conquered Satan's sin and death and that we by faith can place our faith in him and we can, be, we can conquer Satan's sin and death, have the hope of eternal life. And this is what the entirety of the Bible points to, the person, the work of Jesus Verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures and he said to them, thus it was written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance, here he is, we're going into the third point, which is that Jesus gives the power and the commission to preach the message of the resurrection. It's our third point and this is what Jesus now does. He says, look, I've proved to you my resurrection and now, you know, I, I, I've given to you, you know, the understanding of the purpose of my resurrection. And now I'm going to talk to you and give to you this power. And I'm going to give you the commission. You need now to go preach it. And so he says, repent. He says, uh, it's written, thus is necessary for the Christ to suffer to rise from the dead. Third day, verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sin should be Here's the word preached. It means to herald with authority. Should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This is our great commission. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all the nations. How? 
hey, you got you to you preach the message of repentance and, and uh, remission of sins, right? Beginning at Jerusalem, and he says, and you are witnesses of these things. We'll come right back to that. That's important. Behold, he says, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued. You are endued with power from on high. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. Now it sounds in our text, the way it reads, that he did this, he appeared to them, and now he goes out, and now he's going to ascend into heaven. Forty days was the period of time that Jesus had appeared to them and spoke to them and revealed the scriptures to them and commissioned them. It was a a 40-day process. And so verse 50 takes a 40-day leap from verse 49. And he led them out. As far as Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God, amen. And so this is Jesus' ascension. His promise is that he's going to return in his second coming. But right now he's giving to these disciples, look, I promise you power. I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and I'm commissioning you to preach the message of resurrection. And I want you to notice there again in verse 48, Jesus says to these guys, you're witnesses of me. You're witnesses. And that's what we are called to be. We're called to be witnesses. What's a witness? What, What describes a witness? A witness is somebody who, who, who gets a copy of the Watchtower uh, mag, you know, uh, the Bible and knocks door to door and tries to, you know, hey, let me talk to you. But, oh, that's Jehovah's Witness, sorry. Um, a witness is somebody who simply gives a testament to what they've seen, to what they've heard, to what they experience, right? People freak out about the Great Commission. Because you and I are called to live missional lives. That's what, the, that's what we're called to. This isn't just for pastors to herald with authority. It's for you, every one of you, to, to go out and to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And people freak out about that. Wait, what if somebody asks me a question I can't answer? What if, what, if, what if people are mean to me? What if I'm ridiculed and made fun of? Listen, you don't have to worry about any of that. You're just called to be a witness. Well, what if, what if, what if they say no? Hey, that's on them. We're called just to be a witness, just to share what God has done. Let me talk to you about uh, an example of this. Um, John's gospel, it's right here, right to the right. Go to John chapter nine real quickly. And uh, as I glance at the clock, let me see if I can get through this, this, uh, this text real fast. I'm gonna read really quickly. I want you to read along with me. It's an example of what a witness looks like, okay? John chapter nine, let's pick it up in verse one. I'm gonna read fast, read along with me. John chapter 9, verse 1, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's the way they thought in those days. If you had a physical ailment, clearly somebody is in sin. Jesus, verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3, answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. We could spend an entire Sunday on that one verse. Because it would seem that God allowed this man to be afflicted in the way that he was and then for all of those years, for this moment in time that Jesus would be glorified. Whew, huge message in that. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't sin. This is, 
that God, the works of God, should be revealed in him. Verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is the day, the night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and he made clay with the saliva and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. It's not how he did it, it's that he did it, okay? He, he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went and he washed And he came back seeing. He was blind, now he can see. Incredible miracle. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind, they said, is this not the one who sat and begged? Uh, And some said, this is he. And others said, well, he is like him. In other words, well, yeah, but this guy can see. So he's not him, clearly. (coughs) He's like him. And the man said, it's me. I'm he, this is, I'm the same, one of the same guy. And therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? <coughs> and he answered, and he said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go wash in the pool of Siloam and Siloam. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. And then they said to him, where is he? We want some of that. Where is he? He said, I do not know. And so they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. And now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. They're going to have a problem with that. Uh, And then the Pharisees also asked him again how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. And therefore some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. And they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet? You know, uh, I guess, you know. But the Jews, they did not believe concerning uh, him, Jesus, this blind man being healed, uh, uh, that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. Because they're doubting. They're going, oh, was he really blind? And so they asked them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? You know, you got, you're faking it. And everybody in town who's seen that guy his whole life is like, hey, look, this, this is, they're not, they're not, this is not, they're not faking it. I don't have time for this, but a quick joke. My grandfather, <laughs> my grandfather went in, into a bar one time with his German shepherd. This is a true story. Went into the bar with his German shepherd and he's sitting down with his buddies. And uh, my grandfather died in faith uh, in the Lord at the end of his life, but he was a World War II fighter pilot and, and, and he was an alcoholic and for a lot of his life. So he's in the bar and he's drinking with his buddies and he's got his German shepherd and the, and the bartender says, hey, you can't bring that dog in here. And my grandfather says, well, it's a C&I dog. And so he's watching my grandfather like a hawk and pretty soon he goes up to him. He's like, hey, you're not blind. He says, no, but I will be when I leave. <laughs> um, God bless my grandfather. I'm glad he came to know the Lord. Oh, where did I leave off? Let me find it here. Um, uh, which verse? 20, thank you. Uh, and, uh, and so they, they say, who you say, he, he, is he really blind? You know, we'll watch him like a hot kind of thing. Uh, how does he now see? Verse 20, his parents answered them. And he said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's, he's of age, ask him, he'll speak for himself. He's a grown man. 
His parents, verse 22, said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was Christ, that he'd be put out of the synagogue. So they're dodging a bullet here saying, well, ask him, you know, and uh, therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And so they again called the man who was blind. And they said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. You see the testimony there? They don't believe. They're hostile. He's like, look, here's all I know. I was blind and now I see. Listen, guys, you were once blind. And if you've received Christ, now you see. You have spiritual eyes to see. You have a testimony to share. And then they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him and they said, you're his disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. And the man answered and he said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he's from and yet he's opened my eyes. And now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. And since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is his testimony. And they answered and they said to him, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Listen, they rejected him, but he witnessed faithfully. That's what it looks like, guys. He was a faithful witness. A witness just testifies to what he has seen. Listen, your opportunities to witness are so far more common than you would ever imagine. And they come in the most crazy circumstances. I was in the fire department and I had to work with a guy. I worked a bunch of overtime in the, in the fire department and I was working overtime with a guy that wasn't my normal partner and, uh, and he was married, but yet he's bringing his girlfriend over to the station. And, uh, and I didn't like that. And he didn't know the Lord. And so, you know, uh, you know, people in the world, lost people do lost things. But my problem was, look, um, faithfulness is kind of important because we might be in a situation where my life depends on you. And if you can't be faithful to the mother of the children, you're never going to be faithful to me. And so I called him on it. And he says, his answer to me was, well, I don't have a happy marriage like you had. Opportunity for testimony. Buddy, let me tell you about my marriage before I knew Jesus Christ. First five, marriage, five years of my marriage was a train wreck before I gave my life to Jesus. And I started sharing the gospel with him. He doing the backstroke. He could not get out of there quick enough. Didn't want to have anything to do with it. But it's an opportunity for testimony. You have opportunities to share your testimony every single day. <clears throat> Back in Luke 24, I want you to notice the power that Jesus gives, how he empowers our witness. Notice there in verse 49, behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you. He says, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Now I wanna close in the book of Acts. You don't need to necessarily turn there. You can if you want. It's Acts chapter one. Luke finishes his gospel here with Jesus' ascension, but he picks up the story in Acts chapter one. He tells uh, Theophilus, who, the person to whom he originally wrote the, the book of Acts and also wrote the Gospel of Luke, he says to him, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. He's basically saying, look, in the Gospel of Luke, I told you all that Jesus began, and I'm going to tell you now about what Jesus continues to do, and he does it through believers. 
He says, I tell you what he began both to do and to teach until he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering. Here it is, by many infallible proofs, right? Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to God and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, what? For what? For the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus promised them power. They'd been with Jesus for three and a half years. They had all kinds of instruction, intense instruction for 40 days after his resurrection. They still weren't ready. They needed the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness, to be a testimony. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness and a testimony. And therefore, when they <clears throat> had come together, <clears throat> Acts chapter six, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, and he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Here it is. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is our command. This is our commission, receiving that power. I'm going to close right now with three questions. We'll put the questions up now. We'll put them up at the end of the service. So if you miss them, they'll be there. Question number one, how are you tempted to walk by sight rather than walk by faith? We're all tempted to walk by sight in certain ways. What tempts you to walk by sight instead of faith? And what can you do to battle that temptation is the sub-question to that. Question number two, what hinders you from being a faithful witness of God? What is it that hinders you from, from being that faithful witness that you're commanded to be? Third question, what practical steps can you take to be a for, more faithful witness of Jesus?